0: amen let's go to the lord of prayer thank you lord for your word forever settled in the heavens unchangeable without error guiding us into all truth keeping us from sin renewing our minds we thank you lord for your word and now lord as we read your word and discuss it lord help us to to hear in our hearts and be receptive May your Holy Spirit just implant these words in our hearts. And Lord, may we always come to the word examining our own hearts, not pointing at others, but looking deep within. Let your Holy Spirit shine that light into those deep recesses of our hearts where we try to keep things from you, Lord. Expose them all by the power of the Holy Spirit that we might be wholly yours in Jesus name we pray. Amen. Amen. So today uh, if you're a guest with us we work our way through the scriptures and we you have joined us when we are in James chapter 5 verses 1 to 6 some uh, uh, the harshest passage in scripture regarding the abuse of wealth. And so, in honor of God's word, would you stand as I read this passage to you? Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived in, on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts In a day of slaughter, you've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. And you can say, yowza. (laughs) Whoa. So the first verse again, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are to come upon you again, this is the the strongest passage against the abuse, not against wealth, but against the abuse of wealth in scripture. James tells the rich that they should be weeping and howling because of the miseries that are about to come upon them. And the picture is of a sobbing lament punctuated with repeated howlings as they face the final judgment. And we ought to let the subjective horror of this seep into our hearts because it's the word of God. Scripture doesn't teach that being rich in itself condemns one to hell. We see in the following verses, another passage in scripture, that it's loving money and living for it is what condemns us. There's a reason that Jesus declared that wealth is the main competitor for our worship for Jesus' place in our lives. Jesus said, No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other or he'll despise one and be devoted to the other. You cannot serve God and money. And Jesus' use of the word serve here, this Greek word translate we translated as serve, is taken from the Greek word meaning slave. And it can mean to be in bondage to someone or to voluntarily be of service. And that dual use is very applicable here because when we serve money, we become enslaved to it, even though we voluntarily serve it. The power of money comes from our desire to feel secure. We see money as a means to make us comfortable, fed, to afford pleasures of life, to avoid hardships, And James has already told us in chapter 4, 14, that's only for a little while. This life is just a mist that quickly passes away. And if that's all we live for, we better look at the end results of that. That was the struggle in the rich young ruler's heart. He wanted to be right with God, but he couldn't let go of the security he thought wealth to be. Even though the Proverbs say Riches make wings and fly away. There are other passages warning us against being in bondage to money, such as in Paul's letter to Timothy, First Timothy chapter 6, 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves through with many pangs. Ask a wealthy person who lives for money how much is enough and they will usually respond, a little bit more. That's because the more they have, the more they feel they need to be content. But Jesus is the only source of true contentment. What James is addressing is, is the future a judge, judgment. Weep and howl for the miseries that will come upon you. But Paul's expression pierced them through with many pangs is evidenced when you look at the home life of those who live for money. They often go through numerous divorces, can't tell who is a true friend, often find their children are lazy and waiting for dad to die so they can inherit the wealth. It's partly because dad spends all his time chasing money and trying to manage his abundance. I've I've known several very wealthy people in my life, Some have had productive children, but just as many have had deadbeats who will one day waste the inheritance like the prodigal son. And how that must grieve the parents' hearts. They struggle to figure out, what do I do with my will? How do I, where do I leave it? I know my child's going to waste it. And add to that the legal cases they face over business deals and unethical business partners. It's a never-ending hamster wheel. You know, we look at the rich and think, oh, if I could be like them, well, look a little more closely. Now, there are wealthy people in Scripture who kept God first in their lives, including Job, Abraham, David, Josiah, Philemon, Joseph of Arimathea, and Lydia, to name a few. They used their wealth as God directed them, and they laid up their treasure in heaven. James is not condemning wealth, but the idolatry of wealth. He's also helping the scattered churches to see that our natural tendency to envy the rich is misplaced. Wealth can spiritually handicap us. Remember Jesus' expression, it's harder for a rich person to enter into heaven than for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. Jesus told us that our life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions. I remember as a teenager thinking about this verse. Our life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions because that seems seems like what our culture is all about, isn't it? Right? That bumper sticker, he who dies with the most toys wins. I don't think so. He warned us at the end of the parable of the rich fool that where our treasure is, there will our heart be also. Verse two, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. So now we are seeing the reason for the condemnation of this kind of wealth. They hoard huge amounts of wealth and goods and do nothing to help the needy. And it just wastes away. The super wealthy of today are, are I think it's uh, Bill Gates thing that he's challenging them all to give away the bulk of their wealth before they die. But because they are worldly in the first place, most of them, they're giving much of it to causes that are unbiblical, ones that are connected with their businesses or just unrealistic. It helps them feel a little better about being so wealthy. When much of the world lives in poverty. But at the same time, they all get together in Davos and consider how they can manage and control us peons who don't really know what we need. But they'll tell us. (laughs) What they do keep for themselves is more than we would spend in 10 lifetimes. But we must not think of this passage as only addressing the super wealthy. Most of us live better than kings did in the time that James wrote this. Our homes are more comfortable, our transportation is faster and much more smooth and our food more nourishing with many times more options. They would love to live like we do today. But do we live for those things? We must continually check ourselves with the question what or who am i serving we declare jesus is lord but do we wait on our lord's instruction or do we live as we please some of us listened to lowell's memorial service if i hope it's still online if you haven't listened you might still be able to do that we knew lowell was generous he lived here part of the year but at his memorial service we found out that his wealth belonged to the Lord and his insight for development served the kingdom of God. He never mentioned it because it was for the Lord. It wasn't for the praises of man. I remember him telling me that the poor are just as likely to idolize money as the rich are. Lowell understood it was a matter of the heart. Verse three, your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. James is telling us that the problem is not wealth itself, but where our hearts are fixed and what we do with that wealth. He's addressing those who just pile it up and do nothing with it. When they stand before the Lord on the day of judgment, and God asked what they did with their life, they might point to all the gold and silver that they left behind, but it won't be to their praise, but rather to their condemnation. James knew gold and silver don't rust, but he used the expression to to describe it not being used. God gave them the gifts to be able to be prosperous, but they did nothing for God or man with it. It was all for that sense of security. That's really just a mirage. It's evidence against them that their God was money. James' indictment was made even more severe by the fact that it was done in the last days. Now, to understand what that expression means, the last days, we have to go back to Peter's sermon at Pentecost. A crowd, uh, you know, Jesus had just ascended. just 10 days earlier, and he had told the disciples, wait in the upper room, wait there until the Holy Spirit comes in Jerusalem. So they're waiting. The 120 are there in that room praying, and the Shekinah glory, this ball of light comes in and divides into tongues of fire over all their heads, and they step out. Everybody heard the sound of the rushing wind, so a crowd gathered around the building, and they went outside, and those 120 were proclaiming the wonderful works of God and everyone that came from parts of the world heard them speaking in their own language. Some mocked the disciples and said, you guys are all full of new wine. Peter started his sermon by saying, it's too early to drink, guys. (laughs) Acts 2, 16 and 17, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then he quotes Joel 2, Uh, 28 and 29 and in the last days it shall be god declares that i will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams peter claimed what they were witnessing was the fulfillment of joel's prophecy and that means the last days began at pentecost The last days are those in which the gospel is clearly understood and proclaimed, a day when which the prophets long to see. We have seen God in Christ Jesus. We know his heart of love for us as demonstrated on the cross. We can receive the Holy Spirit to be our counselor and our guide and the power to be a witness. We live in these amazing days, a time which the prophets long to see. What makes the storing up of wealth in the last days so repugnant is that we have the full message and the power to share it with the needy world. If then we choose instead to hoard our wealth, not to use it for this glorious mission, we are all the more accountable to God for withholding that message of love and the invitation to the forgiveness of Christ. If we waste our resources on frivolous things when we've been prompted to give to advance the kingdom of God, we miss a great opportunity. God does not want us to live miserly lives and not leave an inheritance to our children or or live in poverty and not enjoy his good blessings. That's not what the passage is teaching, as we'll see in the next verse. It's telling us to have our priorities straight, to realize that time in which we live, to obey the leading of the Holy Spirit when he prompts us to give. Paul invited the churches to give as they decided in their hearts, not grudgingly, because God loves a cheerful giver. He told the Ephesians not to be slackers, but to work with their hands so that they could give to those who had need. This church, Wayside, is very generous, extremely generous. And I thank God that you give so generously that we can consistently give 25% of everything that comes in to missions. It's evidence of the grace of God on this little church. You're giving to God your treasures in the last days when it's so needed to finish spreading the gospel to the remotest corners of the earth, including Southern Thailand. It seems that the more the church gives, the more we're blessed to give. Before he passed on to glory, Dr. Mattai told me he noticed the churches that were the most generous were increasingly blessed and always increased their giving. Verse 4, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. This verse gives us more reasons that God condemns the wealthy profiteering. The means by which they became wealthy was that they withheld wages from the laborers. Um, When I was in elementary school, our close friends of our family uh, was a a contractor and his family. And a big developer, uh, the company is still in Phoenix building subdivisions I won't say who they were because it's a totally different group now Um, but this big developer asked him to come and work for them so he started framing up houses and after he'd framed up a number of homes he came with all the receipts and the developer said we don't have an agreement it was just word of mouth so our friend's family went bankrupt And that's what this passage is talking about, people who abuse others just to increase their wealth. Not only were some people greedy with their financial blessings, but they were using unjust means to gain even more. The Old Testament specifically commands that laborers be paid the day that they perform their task. Just as Abel's innocent blood cried from the ground for justice, so the cry of these laborers whose wages were withheld reaches the ears of the lord of hosts that is the lord of the armies of heaven the language is meant to remind the reader of the curse that came upon cain and of the power of god to enforce justice that was comforting to the church that was scattered around the world At that time, that was mostly poor. Many of them were slaves and being abused by the wealthy. God is compassionate and he is just. When mankind suffers unjustly because of the evil in others' hearts, he hears our cries. Isn't that good to know? Laborers in those days used their daily wage to buy that day's food. So to withhold it meant that they went without. Woe to the offender. When the cries of the innocent reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. That expression should make them shudder if they had any sense of what it means. Their actions are the opposite of the royal law to love your neighbor. God is listening, and God responds. All Christian employers should pay a fair wage in a timely manner. Our testimony is affected by how we treat our employees. Knowing that we claim to be Christian means they believe we represent Jesus, so we should treat them with that in mind. Verse 5, you've lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You fatten your hearts as in the day of slaughter. The wealth of the misers is used to live in luxury, to have the best of everything, and in all ways to be self indulgent. The Greek word here translated luxury describes this comfortable condition, but the word self indulgent means uh, both moral and immoral selfish pleasure. They wouldn't go out of their way to help anyone. They don't consider the need all around them. As long as they're comfortable and experience all they desire, they're satisfied to ignore the needs of others. James tells us their hearts are like the calves that they fatten for a feast. In Kobe, Japan, some of the farmers raise this special breed of cattle. They give them the best of grain, they give them beer to drink, they even massage the cows. And the result is meat that is marbled with fat and is amazingly delicious. The cattle live in luxury, not realizing they are about to be slaughtered. Then their fattened meat is sold at exorbitant prices for the wealthy to enjoy. And as the wealthy people enjoyed their fattened calf that lived in luxury, they don't realize the similarity to their own lives. They have fattened their hearts, indulging in the luxuries of the world while ignoring the need all around them, oblivious to the fact that they are approaching the day of slaughter. Once again, we see James is sharing in his own way what his half-brother Jesus had taught. Jesus told a story which some people see as a parable and some people believe is a true account, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man was dressed in purple and fine linen. Every day he feasted sumptuously. And as Lazarus lay dying at the man's gate, he, the rich man wouldn't even give the scraps off his table. But when they both died, the once rich man now in anguish is told that he had his reward while in the earth, but Lazarus was being comforted. James is addressing this same concern that his brother Jesus did for the need all around us that Jesus was talking about in that story. The Jews have three had and still do have actually three major feasts in which every male was to attend. And families would all make the trip to Jerusalem. It was a time of worship. They celebrated with rich meats. That wasn't part of their normal diet. And God does not condemn feasting on special occasions, especially if it's to honor God and his goodness, such as our Thanksgiving meal. It is the life of continual selfish indulgence that's being addressed by James. Verse 6, you've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So the final word of condemnation was the way the rich gained favor with judges, either by bribery or, or promise of some favor. If the little laborer thought he would uh, get the rich to to pay the wages he withheld, he would usually find the judge would rule in the favor of the wealthy and condemn the righteous person. Or if the rich brought the poor to court to gain financial advantage, the rich would usually win. In the account of the kings, a king of the northern tribes named Ahab wanted a vineyard that was near his palace. He offered to trade this man that owned the vineyard, some another vineyard that was even better, but the owner just refused to trade or sell. So Ahab went pouting back to the palace, unable to buy it, and his wife Jezebel saw that he was upset. When he explained what it was about, she told him, oh, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. She hires two um, evil people to lie about the owner of the vineyard And say he did something that was uh, the, the judgment, which was death. When he was executed, Ahab then annexed the vineyard and got it for himself. It's an Old Testament account of what was something similar to what was happening here in the first century that James is addressing. And we see similar things like this in our own city. I'm sure you know some of the stories. They don't result in murder, but the righteous are ruled against while the wealthy have their way. My neighborhood lost the use of our well, the well my grandfather had dug by hand, because a corrupt developer bribed a judge. When we went to court, he presented his case. The judge ruled we weren't even able to present our case or speak out we're witnessing our system being compromised by judges who rule according to their political bias or for personal gain, instead of the constitution that they vowed to observe. When power rules the judiciary, the righteous will suffer injustice. Francis Schaeffer predicted that a day was coming when we would experience the tyranny of the judiciary. I think it's here. So who is this righteous one who's condemned and murdered without resisting? Surely there are many righteous people who can afford attorneys and resist prosecution. But I think James was alluding to something else. We know of one, the righteous one, who was condemned and murdered without resisting so that he could be our atoning sacrifice. Isaiah prophesied that the righteous one would bear our iniquities, and thank God he has done so. Amen? James is rebuking the wealthy in the churches who don't use their wealth to meet the needs around them, but instead live for selfish indulgence while harming the righteous. He cited their crimes as hoarding fraud, self-indulgence, and murder. And this was a call to them to repent. But it was also encouragement for the poor to know that God hears their cries and will deal with the situation justly, though human courts may not. Looking forward to the coming of the righteous judge brought comfort to them as it should to us if we are in Christ, amen? Come Lord Jesus, amen? A little more, a little more, my fallen nature cries, security and fancies and the lust of my eyes. Money makes its promises, but I know it out from lies. My short life will soon be past, and then I'll realize flesh like grass withers up and then it surely dies. It is in the work of God. Our hearts should sympathize. Amen. Amen. Jill, would you lead us in a closing song and then I'll give the benediction.